a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 104 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve within the business. The Say the Damn Score podcast is presented by Schold Media Group, the best place online to connect and learn from other young media professionals. Grow your career through their engaging content, demo reel critique services, job placement programs, and much more. Find them at scholdmediagroup.com. That's S-H-O-L-D mediagroup.com. This episode marks the four-year anniversary of the podcast. The first episode ever was launched on November 24th, 2015 and featured Mark Boyle, the voice of the Indiana Pacers, on the first episode. While the show did eventually get up, just about everything went wrong. Uh, I mixed up time zones and ended up being an hour late trying to get him recorded. And he actually texted me to see what was going on and why I wasn't calling him in the middle of cooking a pot of spaghetti in my tiny apartment in Aberdeen, South Dakota. I broke just about every traffic law on the way to the studio to make sure that we did get it recorded. Uh, Apparently he didn't hold it against me too badly, but there was definitely a lesson learned at that point to make sure to coordinate time zones after episode number one. Alas... It seems crazy to think that this podcast started four years ago. At that time, I mentioned I was recording in the newsroom after hours at the radio station I worked for in South Dakota. Since then, I've moved twice, left my comfort zone more times than I can count, and maybe most importantly, invested in my own equipment that allows me to make the bad joke about recording from the Say the Damn Score studio, a.k.a. my spare bedroom. It really has been a blast, and I look forward to doing this for many more years, but what I was thinking about recently was how little the podcast has changed since starting it four years ago. Of course, I've done a little bit of experimentation here or there. I've made two little broadcast Booth of Horrors episodes around Halloween. I had John Chalesnik from STAA on to critique the fictional play-by-play from the Major League movies with... Bob Eucher as Harry Doyle, and I had one episode where I dove into the thought process of just packing up my stuff and moving to a major market, but mostly it's been following the formula of have a guest, talk to the guest, and finish it up, and maybe that's the way that it should be. But I wanted to ask you guys, because after over 100 episodes and hundreds of hours of entertainment and career development advice, I wanted to ask a favor of you, the listener. And what I ask is to please just send me a message via email at saythedamnscore at gmail.com. You can send me a Twitter direct message at radio underscore Logan or any other way you can 
answer the following three questions. What do you like about this show? How did you find the show? What could I do to make it better? That's it. My goal really is to make the best show possible. And the only way to do that is to to get feedback and know if I'm doing things right or if there's things that I can be doing different. So I just wanted to reach out and ask for that again one more time. What do you like about the show? How did you find the show? And what could I do to make it better? And you can email me at saythedamnscore at gmail.com or you can talk to me on Twitter at radio underscore Logan. Anyway, this week's guest is not my typical guest. While Matt Kundal has done play-by-play in his career, he's not really a play-by-play guy. Instead, he's a longtime program director at major markets throughout Canada and now consults stations across North America, both in Canada and the United States. And lastly, he's the host of the Sound Off podcast, which is one of my personal favorite industry shows. In this show, we take a little bit of a broader look at the radio slash audio industry in general, the future of the business, and we dive into what it takes to succeed in voiceover business. It may not specifically be focused on sportscasting this time around, so if you if this episode isn't for you, so be it. But I do believe that everything we talk about is relevant to sportscasting and sportscasters. So without further ado, thank you, Matt Kundal, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. And let's start off at the beginning because I do like to have at least a little bit of a play-by-play angle. And I know when you were coming up as a young broadcaster, you did some hockey play-by-play. What drew you to the play-by-play side and... Why did you not continue down that path? Well, I started doing radio at Acadia University, which is in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. This is in 1988, and I loved everything about radio. I primarily liked the music, but we had other things to do, and, and including hockey broadcasts. And I thought, here's an opportunity to just be around radio and get behind the microphone. So I did a lot of, of, of color work uh, alongside um, – a guy named by the name of Gerard Eddy, who I don't know if he went on to to do more radio after that, but I certainly remember that he was very good at what he did. And I thought, you know, I try to aspire to to get to that level too. But I had a lot of fun doing that. I had a lot of fun setting up some some basketball. I learned a lot about engineering. I learned a lot about um, you know backline and where are we going to get power and how's this going to work. And I I just love that entire aspect of the whole thing. But when it came to You know, hockey ended around February. It couldn't go all year, and we didn't get a lot of money for travel. This was also at a time when the program at Acadia University was just beginning to ramp up into into something quite serious. And uh, essentially what this university does in Nova Scotia now is they uh, bring in a lot of hockey players from from Western Canada and say, you know, you're you're playing Tier 1 or you're playing Tier 2, and you may not make the NHL, but you can get an education and do four years and – come to school at Acadia and, and play some top 10 hockey. And that's where the program is gone. And, you know, I, I watched the hockey program grow, but now I've also watched how it has grown from just being on a closed circuit university radio station. The hockey broadcaster now on the Annapolis Valley radio network, which is actually where I wound up spending four years, but is now broadcast across Nova Scotia. And it's fantastic to watch just the hockey broadcast and, and, you know, sort of that footprint and pattern uh, that you see for, uh, 
for Acadia Axman Hockey. So it's just been great to see the program grow, and uh, I'm very proud to say that I was there at the beginning. Do you ever miss it? It's a good yes, I do actually. I miss it, but the thing was, I love hockey, but radio didn't get me close enough to uh, to to be a part of it. Actually, what I wound up doing with hockey in my life is I wound up becoming a hockey coach when I had kids. And before that I was actually quite a successful hockey referee going up to do some, some junior hockey in Alberta and continued that in Quebec. And boy, I had a lot of fun. So, you know, you know, when I was mentioning about, I just wanted to be close to radio and I did that through hockey, but I loved hockey too, but I wanted to be on the ice. I wanted to be, uh, and then eventually I became a, a hockey coach and now I, I just watch hockey. That's about it. Give us just the Cliff Notes version of your career path. I don't want to go deep into each stop along the way. I kind of want to talk about some other stuff. But just so everybody knows your credentials, give us the uh, the shortened version of how you got to the point where you're at in your uh, broadcasting, podcasting, voiceover career. So I just mentioned Annapolis Valley Radio. That's really where I got my radio start. Uh, and from there, spent five years, went to Shome in Montreal, which was uh, an, and still is an album-oriented station. That station, by the way, is going to be celebrating its 50th birthday coming up, and there's going to be a reunion for that. Uh, after that, I went to Edmonton, and uh, home of the Edmonton Oilers, and worked at 100.3 The Bear um, throughout the 90s when the Oilers, they had a little bit of a downturn, and then they, they, they sort of came back to life, uh, and it was fun to watch them. We were not affiliated with the Oilers per se, but uh, it was it was great to be a part of the whole, you know, hockey. You know, watching the ho- you know being in a hockey town is really a big deal. And I remember when the Oilers would play some afternoon games, our ratings would really, really feel it. Uh, and by afternoon games, that's when you know some they were playing the Dallas Stars often, and there were some afternoon games, and it was almost like <laughs> there was no point in broadcasting because the town would shut down. Early in two uh, thousands, I went back to Montreal. And uh, worked again at Shom, which had been bought by Standard Radio, which had CJAD. And the Montreal Canadiens broadcasts were in the building. And it was, you know, being on the management team was kind of fascinating. It was the first time I got to participate in negotiating for, you know, the radio rights for the Montreal Canadiens. It wasn't a long negotiation. It wasn't complicated. But it was uh, it was fun to be a part of the process. And that's when I started to learn a little bit about the relationship between sports teams and broadcasters. Uh, after that, went to Winnipeg, where I was programming Power 97. Again, it's a rock station. Uh, however, in the building, we've got the news talk station uh, and the sports station. Now, when I first got to Winnipeg, it was the Manitoba Moose, which was uh, an AHL team. And this was sort of going to be the precursor to bringing back the Winnipeg Jets. But here it was with with Moose Hockey. We had it in the building. It was a part of uh, of, of you know the, the Power 97 brand. It was a part of our, our company uh, structure and what we did. There was a lot of games to, uh, you know, to broadcast and, uh, you know, contests and giveaways and partnerships. And it was great to be a part of the whole thing. And then 2011 came around and the Winnipeg Jets were coming back. And here we go again. We're ramping up with the, uh, you know, the negotiations to who was going to be the you know station that was going to be bringing the games to Winnipeggers and, I remember going through that process, and that one, the result was a little bit different in that CJOB did not get uh, the rights. They went to TSN here in town as part of a bigger package that involved television, so we understood that. We didn't have any television backing with the company I was at, which is Chorus Entertainment. There is television with Chorus Entertainment, but 
uh, it's women's network and slice and, um, some upper tier cable programming. So that's really where it, you know, began. And then I left chorus in 2014. And since then have been doing some podcasting and, uh, some voiceover work. So I am a big fan of your podcast and you know that I've listened literally to every episode, but the one that you just released either late last night or early this morning uh, at the time of recording and you talk a lot about the future of the business and the lack of innovation in the radio industry. And I want to start with this. Do you own a physical radio in your house anymore? I do not. Wait, I do. It is beside my bed. It is actually big, and I don't use it. I, I actually don't use it. I was actually looking at selling it at one point. And, you know, this is one that I bought back in 2011, and it actually cost me $400 and had a spot for an iPod on it so I could put you know put your music on with the dock and really nice radio but it became outdated very quickly um and yeah since then I actually the Alexa speaker in the uh room has taken over so I still have one and I I was thinking about this cuz I thought I didn't and I was in my office looking around as I was setting up and I actually have it it's not plugged in it's a bookend on my bookshelf to keep my books from falling over. So it's uh, I do have one. It still has the garage sale 50 cent sticker on it. So it's not as high quality as yours. I just use it really for the time right now. And I'm not quite sure what to do with it. I know it's a value. I just haven't figured out what to do with it yet. So the reason I bring this up, and I'm sure you see where this is going, is that radio listenership in homes really doesn't happen anymore on actual radio devices. It's now turning into podcasts and streaming and smart speakers. And I just wanted to see what is your overall opinion on on the future of radio stations in the next 20 to 50 years? Oh, that's going to be really too far in the future, I think, to, to, to figure out. Well, you pick the time frame. Well, I think I'll start with the 20 to 50. I, I think the transmitters are going to come down in that period. I don't foresee a time when transmitters will still be used at the same level or rate. They may actually be split off into something alternative, you know, like an alter, alternate stream or whatnot. But, and I know that sounds really, really weird to say because I think w- what's going to happen in a disaster is is what we all think about. But I do believe that this is a business. Radio is a business. And the cost of transmitters is just going to, at one point, exceed what is possible uh, when we put something out on the streams. So in the next, I think in the next 10 years, we're starting to look at transmitters and what's going to happen. It's very possible, by the way, also that, that you know, transmitters get bought up by companies like Spotify or Google and the, or Apple. And maybe they'll start to find values in getting audio and, and using it as a delivery system to people. And maybe that for radio companies is going to be where they either participate in the entire digital game or where they drop off completely. And I think the rules are, just like today, going to be different for smaller markets. Smaller markets are going to have increased value of those transmitters. So, you know, we talk about, you know, low power FM being something sort of a little bit of anomaly, a little bit different and something sort of completely different. I think it's going to be where the small market stations or the medium-sized market stations actually get more value for the transmitters than than big city stations do. I find that interesting because when you talk to people right now who are program directors or 
people who are in the radio business, and they'll tell you everything is great. They get the 93% reach. They do well with their you know, personality-themed content. And I just don't see it that way. I look at my little sister, and I asked her when the last time she listened to the radio was, and she says she just doesn't. And it's becoming more and more of a trend. I can't believe that these people who are saying that tell the truth. Do you see the younger, the millennials listening to radio in the future? Well, I've got three Gen Zs in the house. They do not listen to the radio. Although... One of them started driving the car, and I began to see a little bit of tunage to a rock station. I, I think a lot of that is going to be based on the radio that's in the car. So when that car gets swapped out and there's Apple CarPlay, watch the behavior change. I know that when I rented a car in Tampa recently, it came with Apple CarPlay, and I'm like, i got to get this in my car. And that, unfortunately, is going to sort of spell the end of me listening to to local radio unless they can provide some value. But But I understand what you're saying about programmers when they say about the 93% and the number is there the number is true and yes it is great but you know for those of us who say well radio's not doing as well we're using a different measuring stick we're actually using the engagement measuring stick and i don't think radio is doing a very good job when it comes to engagement just reaching people is is, is not enough you've got to get them to react and engage with the stuff that you're putting out there and it's very very hard to do and the reason why podcasting is now taking off is because it has a very high engagement level that really touches people. And it was something that we used to brag about in radio back in the back in the 90s. Radio is is really sort of this intimate medium of audio where we can connect to people and talk and, and you know no greater way than you know baseball. You know when when you know whether it's you know Vin Scully or or for me growing up it was Dave Van Horn up in Montreal you know, these are the people and the storytellers that we had in our lives. And baseball was fantastic for that and really was was building radio. And that'll still exist. And that's going to be fine. But I, I think we've seen some numbers for baseball drop off. And then we've seen a little bit of erosion. This is really about engagement. And, and the reach is fine. The reach is there. The engagement is not. So that's the challenge for programmers going forward is that when you get a strategy, can we put some engagement in there. What is going to be the the return on engagement when we when we do something on the radio? What are examples of of getting that engagement and getting the innovation that you have seen uh, in North American markets? Well, it's really as simple as, as getting people to to connect. I, I think Bobby Bones is a great example. I and mean, most of the things that he does on on his show, and you know, he's now syndicated to to a number of radio stations. It, it's got an emotional component to it. He doesn't do something just to do a bit and to check the box and to say, you know, connect with me on my Facebook page. I, you know, radio is about often when you listen to it and I've loved to, I'd love to do this exercise. I just don't have the time to do it. Um, and that's count the doggy commands, count the times that we give instructions to our listeners to go and do something, join our Facebook page, be there. Call now. Operators are standing by. It doesn't matter if it's in a commercial. It doesn't matter if it's the 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 the, the jock doing it, and it doesn't really matter if it's a sportscaster who who who's saying it as well. I think it's really important that we count the number of times that we do that and give the listener a job. Listeners come to us to get away from their boss, from somebody who might be nagging at them, for somebody who's telling them what to do. Nobody wants to be told what to do. 
over and over and over again. And you don't get that as much on a podcast. In podcasting, people will, they're talking to you. In radio, it appears we're talking at you. You touched on something a little bit back that I want to follow up on, and it was the connected car. And you talked about Apple, I don't even remember what it was called. I have an old car, so I don't have this. But essentially streaming music in the car, a connected car, so you no longer need the actual transmitter. How many of those are out there now, and how long do you think it will take for them to become more prevalent? It takes a, I mean, a car's lifespan, depending on where you live, if you live out east, a car's lifespan is about seven or eight years before you really start to move on from it. If you're more in the west, in the Midwest, where it's a little drier, it's going to take uh, you know, 13, 14 years, perhaps, before the cars move on. So it's going to take about you know, a generation, two generations worth to move all the cars along before we start to get things like Apple CarPlay. I got into my car in, in Tampa and all of a sudden my phone, it connects to the car and my Waze is appearing on the screen and it's easy to use and the messages are popping up and it, it it's really about simplicity. And right now that's where radio has its advantage. And that's when you get into any car, most of it doesn't have Apple CarPlay or doesn't have the, the Amazon feature with the, with the voice activation in it just yet. It's coming, but it's not there just yet. And this is why radio continues to have its 93% reach. So with that said, you know, people get in the car. I, I watched my, my Gen Z kids. They are sitting around there. They are messing about with their stupid phone, and they're not driving the car and taking me to where I need to go. They want to get their music set up on the Spotify to, to set it up. And that's a pain in the ass. Right now, it is, is, it's a bit of a pain in the ass. Somebody find the aux cord. Somebody plug in the aux cord. Does your, does your car even have a space for an aux cord? So there's a lot of fumbling going on right now. That's going to change in the future. I think Apple CarPlay will do well. I'm not sure. Of course, this is very, very early days for the, for the Amazon device. I'm trying to refrain from saying the uh, A-L-E-X-A because I don't want to trigger everyone's machines. But <laughs> that, is, that is now starting to arrive in the car. And I know that Steve Goldstein from Amplify Media recently uh, did a test run. And, and he found it, it, you know, we don't have the voice activation thing down yet. It recognized, I think the success rate on most voice activated stuff is about 80%. Well, that, that's also a little bit cumbersome. But I think we all know that there's going to be a day when it is going to be really simplistic to connect with what we want. And when that happens, radio needs to be in a position to deliver to people exactly what they want. And I think radio, to their credit, recognizes that. And they're looking for solutions to get to that point. But it's going to take a little bit of time. In my experience, so much of so many of the people who have the power to make those changes and and do what needs to be done to kind of save the industry just don't want to do it right now because that would potentially hurt their their short-term retirement portfolios and so on and so forth what will it take to get the leadership in the industry that we need to to make those changes well i think they have to recognize that that you're either in this thing or do you to, think it is there I, I do. And we, and we see some of this with, with a number of companies who have, who have jumped into podcasting and jumped into you know, various spaces. Um, where we are not seeing it is, is somewhere in the middle tier level uh, of company ownership where it's very expensive to do it. And, and you don't have a ton of backing and you can't go and buy how stuff works by sometime tomorrow. And 
the return is just not there yet. But I think you need to to find some sort of you know zero sum game for the, for the interim to to be involved with this stuff. I'm a little what I'm really worried about though, Logan, is is when I see radio stations that have cumbersome streams. Like some stations haven't even embraced digital. Have you ever tried to connect to some stations with their stream? It's it's not even there. I mean, that should be that should be job one. And job two should be to have, you know, clean, you know, Facebook pages or, or Twitter pages, things that are easily accessible that people can find that they don't have to jump through hoops for. That's the stuff that I don't see. I, I, I've looked at a few websites of some radio stations, and honestly, some of it looks like GeoCities. That's the stuff that really worries me. And you don't have to be left left behind. And you don't – just because you're not – or you don't see a path to making money doesn't mean you shouldn't invest because I think – like podcasting, like most things, you have to build it and you're going to have to monetize it later. I don't think when you sit down and plan, and I think this is where a lot of radio people get really stuck, is they say, okay, well, we're going to build it and we're going to build a digital platform, but how are we going to make money? And then nobody knows how to make money. And then the conversation goes sideways and then nobody ever talks about it again for another six months. And then six years later, nothing is done. I think you have to build it. And then you have to figure out how to monetize it later. Your plan is going to be different than, than the next town over. It's going to be different from Springfield. It's going to be different from Peoria. It's going to be different than Bismarck. It's going to be different. Your strategy is going to be different. This is where you have to put on your innovation cap and, and look and find a way to do it. But you have to play the game. You can't win unless you play the game. If you would go back in time and 20-something Matt Kundle was trying to get into radio today – where you now have endless opportunities to start a podcast. There's a very low barrier, but there's very few overnight radio jobs or entry-level radio jobs in actual companies. Do you think it's harder or easier today to get into this business? I think it's different. Some of the most successful people I've seen who've gotten into radio in the last little while are doing it the old-fashioned way. Um, or they're not doing it the old-fashioned way. What we used to do is we used to make an MP3. We used to send it to a program director. we say, do you have any jobs open? And go from there. Some people I'm seeing now who are getting jobs are going to program directors and and leaders and heads of operation. They're coming in with a plan saying, here's the audio I want to make. These are the hours I want to put it on. You're currently running brokered programming or you're currently running something that is not terribly feasible. What if we did this in this time spot and then have a measuring stick for what is going to be, what you can change. I've seen it a couple of times that we now have overnight radio across many stations in Canada on the chorus radio network, just because uh, an individual by the name of Drex came up with a proposal to put overnight radio back on and here's how we're going to do it. And this is going to be the business plan. You've got to be very smart about, about people's time. And it's really, we're in a, you know, now with computers, it's very easy just to put on simple programming and walk away from it. Well, as talent, here's an opportunity where you say, I think I can really do well for you in this, in this spot, in this position with this kind of radio show. And you have to convince people you're in business. They're in business. You've got to put together a, your own personal business plan in order to do it. So 20 year old Matt Cundle today would probably come up with a show idea. Let's say I have, well, I've got a couple of shows. But my shows, I want to be able to put them on the radio. I would probably go to my local talk station and say, you know, I'm happy to do a podcast for myself, but 
what if you were to play the podcast every week? And I kept it to, you know, 56 minutes. So there was times with commercials and I made it with some breaks and the content really met what your needs are. You have to marry yourself to, to the radio brand to do it. I know people who do this and it, it, it's available. The problem is, is two things. One of them is, is compensation and, and the other is, is, is work. You know, it, it does take a little bit of work to do it, but this is the model I see going forward. So if you are producing audio content, talk to the radio people about it because they're in it to make money. I, I think we forget that, that radio is still a very, very strong business and they're in it to make money. And in order to make money, if you're going to be a content creator, create the content and then find a way to to get it on the radio. My only warning to the content people is make sure you do keep a little bit of your intellectual property because it doesn't have to be an adversarial conversation between you and the radio people. It, it can be a shared operation. How important are sports to the survival of radio? Huge. They're, they're the, like, the one thing that is still potentially unavailable through other outlets. So sports is is live. Radio is a live medium. It, it's just a natural and it's fantastic and, and it's going to be there for a very long time. Sports, I see it growing. Sports radio, you've got, whether it's an AM station, I, I have noticed that when I did a trip recently that a lot of the, the sports outlets have just sort of gravitated over to FM. And I think that, and I'm not here to knock AM radio or its quality, it really sort of speaks to me and tells me that sports is very valuable to, to radio owners. So we're listening, we're hearing the sports on the radio. It, it is a live experience. Radio has always been about the live experience. There's lots of opportunity for storytelling. There's a developing story in the game that is going on. I think the future is huge uh, for sports and, and radio. I don't see it going anywhere. I'm a little more concerned about music and radio. However, I don't think we're at that point yet because music you can get anywhere. You can get it on Spotify. You can get it, you know, traffic. You can get it on the phone. However, sports is live and radio is live and we need to listen to it now. So I, I really am bullish on the future of sports radio. So how did you come up with the idea for your podcast called, again, the Sound Off Podcast? You are obviously the host and you talk to different radio programmers and personalities from all around both the United States and Canada. Where was the where did the inspiration come from? The inspiration came in an envelope that was slid across to me and told I was no longer going to be program director at a radio station. Um, it actually took about a year and a half before I, I started to do some consulting for some radio stations, uh, including a, a radio station out in Kamloops, British Columbia. Um, they have a wonderful hockey team, by the way, the Kamloops Blazers, uh, and also NL Radio. They were doing the a uh, lot of the play-by-play -play and have been doing it for years. Uh, that was a great experience. I got to work with that group out there. And then after that, I thought, you know, what happens next? So I went down to the Conclave in Minneapolis, which is a radio convention, which everybody should go to if you do get a chance. And I, I really loved the conversations that were going on. And I thought, I, I think we need to bottle some of this. And, and what if we put one out there every week and we kept the conversation going about radio and its future? So from there, I started a podcast and we would do an episode every week. We would talk with many of the people who were at the convention you know, eventually some Canadians or it was, you know, people from the Midwest that spoke to consultants and began to develop just a storyline about what radio could be and, and where it could go. And really the, the benefit for that, it's really essentially a branded podcast for my radio consulting company. However, things changed and we went to the podcast movement. We saw the power of podcasts we saw that 
There was a lot of people with microphones who maybe at one time would have done the all-night show or would have participated in radio in some particular way, but they were doing it on their own. So it looked like pond hockey. And if you've ever seen pond hockey, it's just sort of a stick and a puck and you, you play hockey and you make up the game as you go. That's really what podcasting is. And I said, you know, I'm really good at keeping the puck on my stick when it comes to, to audio. I'll figure out how to score later. And at which point the business began to grow into a podcast consulting business uh, where we're launching podcasts for entrepreneurs, you know, every other week. And it, it, it's quite exciting. And I haven't stopped doing radio consulting. I've still got my clients in, in Canada and I'm fine with it. However, it's the the podcast side of things that I find that is really, really intriguing. And I still try to find a way for radio people to to work their way into the podcast space and into the digital space. What do you, so what I've ran into in the podcast space is that the people who are in the podcast space before radio decided, oh crap, we better get in the podcast space where a potentially natural fit are kind of not happy that the radio people are in the podcast space. You go to the podcast movement and to podcast conferences. What have you seen in that regard? Well, I've seen radio show up. Radio still behaves a little bit like it's a radio conference. And so if you go to a radio conference, you'll find sort of clusters and clumps of of people who will gather and keep to themselves. And, you know, perhaps it's not one company that will be talking to another company. It feels like everybody's in a bit of a camp and not sharing information uh, about what, what works. And I think this is a challenge for radio people. So if you're in radio right now, when was the last time you took your competitor out for coffee and asked them what worked? I think we need to do that. We need to go out and ask and say, hey, what's working with you? And here's what's working with me. And share your ideas about what engages people. This is really what, what I mean, you're still going to be competitors at the end of the day. But I think when it comes to the technology and the engagement, we have to talk about what people works. Because if you're both sucking at it, people are going to be gone to Spotify very fast. So I think that's something that needs to be fixed. And I just threw that out there. And I know I took your question a little bit sideways. But the, for, for the people in the podcast space, I, I think there's an attitude that radio people are coming in and going, well, thanks for the first 15 years of podcasting. We know what we're doing and we'll be taking over now. Thank you. I don't think radio is really behaving that way completely. I think what radio is going to find, and I know a lot of this sort of came out of what Bob Pittman said at the radio show where uh, podcasting would be radio's birthright. I, I think birthright is a really, really difficult word, probably the wrong word to put in for, for that, for the statement that he was trying to make. And a lot of what he said was, was accurate and correct. But the thing that radio people are going to have to find out about podcasting is it's very, very hard. It's very hard because you're starting from zero. If you start a podcast tomorrow, you have zero listeners. When the podcast starts, you're going to have the most listeners you're ever going to have, and then it's going to be a slow bleed depending on how boring your guest was. So I'm really hoping I haven't sort of dissuaded a lot of listeners off this particular podcast by <laughs> you know, with, with the conversation. But that's the honest truth about how podcasting works. You know, if you get to you know minute 26, you know there's there's going to be less and less people listening as you go forward through the podcast. So it's it's not like radio where it's like everybody join us tomorrow at 8:15 and we're going to have our biggest quarter hour at that point. So it's a little bit different in the thinking. There's no uh, you know like I said, there's no commercials and music. So you know 95% of the work that is done by the music department and the and the traffic department as they schedule commercials is just not there. So you're going to have to come up and tell a story. 
it's going to take some production time. It's going to take a lot of, okay, what else can we do to make this better? It's a different way of creating audio that is actually quite foreign to many radio people. You've been successful, at least it appears you have. I guess I don't see your ledger books or anything, but you always seem to have uh, multiple sponsors on your podcast. You've seemed to have been successful growing the audience to a point where it's been monetizable. Uh, what have been the keys to being able to build that without going into any specific numbers or anything? No, I. you know what? I'm really, really happy to go into the numbers. And I'll tell you why. It's because we're all in this together. I'm learning. Everybody else should be learning too. So I, I don't mind sharing some numbers um, because if you ask me for them, I'll just give them to you. So the Sound Off podcast has, has 2,500 uh, downloads a month. And that you know what? That's not a lot. However, it's all about radio. So if I were to tell you that, that there were 2,500 people who were really interested in radio who were going to be listening to the podcast, what would you say? If there's 2,500 radio people who show up to a conference and you were to put up a banner, what is the price of putting up that banner in advertising? So that's the model that I use. I'm not obligated to use a traditional CPM model of charging 18 to 25 dollars per, you know, for an ad. I mean, I'm going to get next to nothing for that. But the truth of the matter is, because it's a very niche format in radio, and it's all broadcasters. Because let's face it, why would anybody want to listen to my podcast if they didn't like radio? They would be wasting their time, and they would never do it. So I look at the 2,500 number. I look at conferences and. I, I feel it's appropriate to charge a very similar number for, for being very niche. Now, you may not have a subject matter on a podcast that might be as, that niche. So you're going to have to you know, play with a reasonable you know, CPM in, in order to make that sale. The truth of the matter is that the amount of money that I make from the podcast is enough to justify keep, keeping the podcast going every, every week. And it's quite nice. And then I sort of look at it as, well, what is the podcast? This podcast is really a... It's a marketing tool for me. It's a marketing tool to keep connected with people. It's a marketing tool for, you know, the work that I do. And so it's not just some sort of revenue generator of, of putting ads out there. It, it, it's a way to connect with people, but it's a way for people to market themselves and to be out there and, and to share the message. I, I think it's really important that we talk about podcasting as a marketing tool. So if you start a podcast and there's no... And you're like, I don't have any ads and there's no money and I'm not, well, it's still a marketing tool, right? So think of the money that you would put into the podcast and let's say it costs about $1,000 a year. I'm just going to use an arbitrary number to cover off your hosting and your microphones and your equipment. I don't know if I can necessarily cover off your time with that, but let's say it's $1,000. Well, you could spend $1,000 on any other form of marketing and waste it another way. This podcasting one is way stronger than any Facebook ad you'll ever buy. And how did you build your audience? Because I know, I mean, I have a, a good, small, loyal audience, similar, smaller than yours, but similar. But I've found that, you know, it's easy to run into a plateau where you just get the same, same numbers for a long time. How did you find that growth? I've actually had the same numbers for a long time, probably for about a year. Uh, and it, but it has grown like by about 100 or 200 per month, perhaps. It, it's, it's baby steps. And it's consistency. So you've got to be really consistent with your episode releases. And you should be putting one out every week or every two weeks. But you've got to be there. 
So here's one of the things that radio does really well. Every morning at 6 a.m., our morning show starts. And every morning at 7, we've got the news. And at 7.15, we've got our feature. And at 7, you notice there's benchmarks in there. And you're getting people into the habit of listening to your radio show and being on time. That's why program directors always want things to happen on time. Podcasting, and a lot of podcasters have not figured this out, is that you need to train your audience to download your episode every week or every other week. And you've got to get them into the habit. So if you you say you're going to release every second Tuesday and you're not releasing every second Tuesday, you're going to lose that audience. So being consistent is so key when it, when it comes to building audience. The other little piece of bad news for, for, for anybody who wants to get into podcasting is after you've done your episode, you're not done. You've got to market it. So have a marketing plan. And then reevaluate your marketing plan going forward. So my marketing plan is I like to do a few tweets every day. I like to do one post on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn uh, every week with every show that I release. I will put additional content out on those platforms if there's an interesting article about radio. Um, Instagram stories, I try to keep those updated as much as possible. Spotify makes it really, really easy to share your podcast into your Instagram stories. I, I can't believe how easy it is. And, you know, with, if somebody likes what they see, they'll just touch it and all of a sudden they're listening. The thing with the Internet that I learned a long time ago is that anytime it can be anything can be one or two clicks away, you're in you're in the end zone. So on, you know, on Instagram stories, you just touch the listen now and all of a sudden somebody's listening to your podcast. How wonderful is that? So can you draw a, a quick line so that anything you want people to access is one click away? If you can do that, it's you're, you're, you're going to be home free when it comes to connecting as for the growth, it will come slowly. You're not going to have an overnight spike. You're not going to one book. I know in radio, we always talked about, you know, one booking your competition that that's not going to happen. And the other thing I want to point out is just like you and I are doing here, you have, you have a sports broadcasting podcast and I've got one that's a little more general about radio. We're not enemies. Like we are, this is not how, it's not like the, the station that's down the street that's trying, that's also a CHR station like you. Your, your, your enemy is your friend. Your perceived enemy is your friend. This is the world we live in now. So like if you finish a Netflix show, hey, you just watch this show. Maybe you're going to like this show. Netflix wants to keep you watching. Same thing with Apple. You know, your podcast appears alongside my podcast for, for many of our listeners. Hey, you like the Sound Off podcast. Can we give you the Say the Damn Score podcast? Because that's a very similar genre. So your enemy is not your friend. And it's 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 okay to promote them. And it's okay because people, as long as you're listening to a podcast about radio, I'm happy. And I'm happy promoting, you know, all of them. What have been your favorite moments on your own podcast and who's been your favorite guest? And, you know, just to make this easier, because I know it was fantastic, I'll exclude myself from your podcast. <laughs> it was wonderful having you on, by the way, Logan. And I'm so glad that you've embraced the podcast space to this level. And I think what you do for uh, for sports broadcasting is, is wonderful. Uh, my favorite episode has probably been Broadway Bill Lee. Uh, out of New York City, who's, you know, at the age, he's he's 70 years old, but he's still connecting on social media and Facebook and Instagram. And he puts his break of the day up there. And, you know, he inspired me many years ago when I was 20 years old through Art Volo video air checks. 
And that's when we would circulate videos of other disc jockeys doing work. And I saw Broadway Bill, Bill Lee and I said, I want to do that. And then when I found out I couldn't do that as well as he could do that, he's still doing it. But now he's doing it on social media. And I think that's fantastic and a wonderful inspiration for, for up-and-coming broadcasters. I just mentioned Art Volo, who, who used to supply all those videotapes. I had him on the podcast, and, and he was awesome. A little more on the Canadian side, uh, there was two Much Music VJs. Uh, Much Music is the MTV of Canada. At the time, I don't think it exists much anymore. Nobody's playing videos on TV. But both Steve Anthony uh, came on the podcast and Christopher Ward. They were VJs. You might not know who Christopher Ward is, but you have heard his work. He was a co-writer of Alana Miles' Black Velvet, (laughs) which was the number one song way back when, 1990. Would you like to hear an irrelevant story? I would love that. My wife won $400 once doing karaoke to that song at a small bar in South Dakota. Well, Christopher Ward's not hearing that. He'll, he'll look for a piece of that pie. <laughs> I think we're okay. All right, good. The epi- I mean, there's an episode every week. Um, I just love I love trying to find people and bring them on and have them tell their story. And I've always loved interviewing. I've, I've loved interviewing whether it, it, it's sports people or, or rock musicians. And now I get to interview somebody every week. And it, uh, it it's really wonderful that technology allows us to do this now. What makes a great interview? like you're doing actually short questions, you know, having you're, you're prepared. I can hear you're prepared with all the questions. So you've got a path. I can hear you've obviously prepared this interview. So preparation is key. You want to take the interview from one spot, hear the questions and you want to have it sort of wind up at this, at this end point. So preparation, like any broadcast is 50% and then execution is the other 50% short, concise questions that are targeted, that are going to make the person you're interviewing speak and part with the information that you're really looking for them to part with. I think the other key is to interview broadcasters who all love to talk. (laughs) It's not hard to get a good interview out of broadcasters. The program director at, at Boom in Toronto, he pointed that out. He said, so basically you just interview people who love to talk. So you just ask one question and sit back and then everybody creates the content for you. And I go, yeah, I'm a little bit busted there. I've found that in preparing for podcasts and getting ready for interviews, it's really easy to ta- to find information on on Vern Lundquist, who was episode 100, or Bob Costas, or Ian Eagle. They're easy to prepare for. Some of the times when you have maybe a college women's broadcaster, there's less there. There's just no information there. What do you do to get a great interview without much information? So I was talking a little bit about marketing the podcast, and and one of the things I left out was how important it is to go to conferences and network with people and say hello. It makes such a big difference when you you meet the person and you get to know them, and it's also – you become a little more comfortable in asking them on your show. So never turn down an opportunity to to get out and, and to meet people because it's really easy to do a podcast from your basement, but you're not going to get the best podcast unless you go out and, and, and meet people. After that, you can you can take advantage of of editing. You know, so if, if you ask a bad question or if the question's a little bit off or there's a piece of information that comes up later, you're welcome to edit it out and, and, and put it in. It doesn't have to be a, a completely live podcast. But that just takes so much time. <laughs> I, for what it's well, worth, I do very little editing. I, I go through it and I take out the real clunky areas, but I I view it as a conversation. So if there's something that's a little 
little makes me look stupid, I'm okay with that. It's authentic. I think you need to be prepped. And I've had people come back and say, you know, I, I left this person out and I really wanted to give them a shout out or a mention. And I'm very happy to re-record them and, and have them add that stuff in. It, you know, in the end, it's, it's we're talking about a piece of audio that is is going out that that can be, you know, my, my dad used to have a saying, he was a stockbroker and he used to have a saying, it's time to call in the order. And I think if you have a hard stop on the podcast, let's say it's going to be Sunday at six, anytime up to that, you can alter and change and, and move the podcast and the content into what you need it to do. You touched on conferences and networking and you go to a lot of them. I try to go to one or two a year. And it, it helps now that I live in Minneapolis. I've been able to go to the Conclave once. I actually didn't get to go last year just because I had other stuff going on. But I've found them to be extremely valuable as far as networking and relationship building tools. What are your keys to maximizing going to a conference? Because they can be inconvenient, they can be expensive, and you want to get the most out of them. Yeah, that, that's a great question because often I don't have a lot of strategy going in. I, I don't start making strategy in, in there until I until I get into the room. I think it's really important that you meet people and you listen. And I think that's that's all you really need to do is get in there, meet people, and listen. Let them tell your sto- their story. And in turn, when somebody asks you, you tell your story about what you do. I think it's really important to to save people's time at these conferences They've got things to do. So, you know, can you summarize what you what you're all about in, you know, 30 seconds? And can you leave something behind? I really like to leave a card behind, a nice business card or something that will connect them to the podcast. Because, you know, they may not want to spend all their time with you at the conference, but they're going to need something to listen to on the way home. So I always suggest, hey, why don't you try it a few episodes on the way home? And though, you know, that's, I, I always see a little bit of a spike after I leave a conference and people who went and tried my podcast because they needed something to listen to on, in the car or on the plane on the way home and something to think about. And I'm happy to reconnect with them later and, 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 and make, you know, do business a little bit later. I mean, how often do you go to a conference and you've signed the deal there? That never happens. It's always a little bit later. You also have a business where you do voiceovers for radio stations, for, uh, for whoever I'm assuming needs it, training videos, all the fun stuff. A lot of sportscasters think that it's something that they should be able to do because they have the natural pipes and voiceover seems like a natural step to go to make money. What do you need to do to be good at voiceover? Because it's not necessarily what most people think. Forget everything you learned in radio about your voice. You become an act. So in radio, you are told to be yourself. You need to be yourself in order to be successful. To be a successful voice actor, you need to become an actor, essentially. You are, you are acting. You are playing the part of something. And you need to throw out the, what you learned about radio. And quite often, I'll get in with a voice coach, and the voice coach will say, oh, you're from radio. And I say, yeah. And they say, well, this is going to be a big makeover because it is a giant makeover. And and who you think you should be doing voice work for is not who you are going to be doing voice work for. So if you have a big voice and you think I'm going to be the voice of a rock station or a sports station or I'm going to be the imaging voice, if you stay at it long enough, chances are good you'll find out that you're probably not very good at that. But maybe you're very good at something else. And that was my story. I thought it was going to be a little bit more about imaging radio stations and it turned out to be more about corporate narration and e-learning and telephones of all things. 
I mean, I was surprised as anyone, but most of my voice work comes from imaging uh, AC radio. That's unbelievable. I never thought I would be a voice of AC radio, but I'm the voice of, of a number of AC radio stations across the United States and e-learning, you know, where I'm actually teaching people and teaching kids. I think it's, it's fascinating where, where it all went and it all happens on, again, I go back to this model. You got to jump in the ring and you got to try it. You're not going to be a great hockey player unless you you go buy skates and a stick and a puck. You're not going to be a good podcaster unless you start podcasting. You are never going to be good on the radio until you got behind a microphone and started doing it. So it's the same thing with voice work. You've got to get in there and you you've got to start doing some some work. You can't just sit back and wait for the money to come in and you've got to practice and hone your craft and really be honest with with yourself. What am I good at? Am I any good at this? And you're going to have to ask for some feedback. You'll more than likely have to get some coaching. And you will land in an area that you probably didn't think you would land in. Remember, somebody is buying something from you. They're buying your voice. They're the ones directing you. They're the ones who are going to be telling you what to do. And I know coming from the programming side and being a program director for many years, it's very, very hard to take direction after after just giving direction for 15 years. So you have to part with that as well. It's really unique. Uh, it's great work. I, I I love it. I don't love it as much as I love podcasting and creating audio from scratch. I think there's really uh, a benefit to being yourself. Being a voice actor is is it's a separate type of work of work. It's different. Um, I do enjoy it. I just don't love it as much as podcasting. How do you find voiceover work? Because I dabbled in it a little bit. I made a couple hundred bucks on Fiverr, and it ended up just being more work than. Than, than the time that it took to do well on it. Where do you find your voiceover work? Fiverr. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I, to be honest, I actually did a year on Fiverr, but only so I could speak to the experience of, of doing it. And, you know, I pulled about $5,000 out of Fiverr, but it was just like you said, it, it's not real work. A lot of the work just was for demos and just for, uh, you know, kids projects and, you know, people who are looking for a, people who really didn't value professional work. And once I left that, then the professional work began to to roll in. It's no different. We were talking earlier about radio personalities and finding work. You know, you send an MP3 and you need to show value for what you do. You sh- In voiceover, you're going to be spending about 80% of your day looking for work and about 20% doing the actual work. There's There's a real marketing trick to it, especially if you're going to be doing it online or you're going to be doing it from – from your home that involves, you know, having a good demo, telling people what you do, showing value for the company that you're presenting to, you know, are you willing to cut them a quick sample to show them, you know, what it's about? I mean, we talk about auditions and I'll get into the, the online, you know, component in just a sec, but I think there's incredible value in going to companies and saying, listen, I know you make uh, corporate narration videos. Here's what I'm willing to offer. I'd like to do a couple for you. And then I'd like to work with you on an ongoing basis. And you know what? They'll put you in the bank. But in the end, it's really not up to that company on whether or not you get hired because you might have a nice voice, but maybe they want a female voice. Maybe they want something that's a little bit more conversational. Maybe they want something that's going to have a little have an accent. Maybe they want something Australian. It's just really out of your hands. So in the end, it really does pay to go and to market yourself into these companies and just be a part of the conversation. You know, sometimes you don't have to be the best. You just got to, you just got to, you just got to be in the mix. It's really just about being in the mix. And so I'll, I'll move it over to some of the online um, casting companies. 
Uh, Voices.com is not – it's a Canadian company. It's not something that I recommend. Uh, I don't think they're transparent with with their operations. Um, and I think they're, they're hoarding money in a strange way. Anyhow, um, again, the reason why I mention that is because the money that they offer on the sheet is not really the money that the client was paying. And so they're not transparent about that. There are other companies that, that are um, transparent um, and we're trying them out. We're not really sure if, you know, there's companies like voiceovers.com, Voices123 has mixed reviews. Uh, there's a company in Europe called Boldago. Uh, who I had a chance to meet the owner a few weeks ago and and it, it you know, very transparent as well with, with some of the rates. In the end, you're a business. You need to make a decision about what's going to work for you. Sitting at home and doing auditions all, all day and not getting any reward for coming in second in the audition, that's it's going to be very hard on you. It's going to waste a lot of your time. I think you've got to be very calculated about your time and, and how much you're going to put put into it. How do you decide which jobs you take and which one you don't? Because I know when I was doing Fiverr, and maybe these go away a little bit once you get, as you said, real jobs. But a lot of them, I didn't ask many questions, and I stopped doing them after one or two times. But they were pretty clearly pyramid scams, trying to get people to buy into these multi-level marketing things, cash squares, they called it. And... I did a few. I didn't feel good about them. I took their money. But how do you decide which ones you take? Or do you just say, hey, I'm the voice. I'll do whatever. So are you talking from an ethics perspective or yes, a price ethics. perspective? Okay, so your ethics. I have a, a voiceover partner who doesn't like – she's an animal rights advocate. So she refused doing an ad for a zoo. I totally get that. And another one refused to do one for a meat company. She's a vegan. I totally get that. Um, she's also on the radio and she's like, well, maybe I, I, do I have to read the commercial at the radio station? Well, yeah, you probably do. Actually, you're your own business. You get to make these decisions and, and you're welcome to whatever ethics. But I, I will tell a story about, um, 2016, I never made more money in a month than the U S election. So I started to get a lot of election work that came in and I, I, I love telling the story. So the script came in for a Republican who was apparently an enemy of health care. And we're not to vote for him because he's an enemy of health care. I didn't know how to pronounce his name, so I ran it through YouTube. And there was a video of him caring for his dying wife who was dying of Alzheimer's. And I thought, this man is not an enemy of health care. And in that moment, I had to make a decision. Should I send the script back or should I just understand that what I'm doing is really acting? And it's just words on a page and it goes both ways and it's words that will cut both ways anyway. And do you want to play the game? So the truth is, yes, I want to play the game and I want to voice election ads. And I've read some horrible things about some, some great people and it's crap, <laughs> but I'm still reading the ad and I'm, I'm understand that that's just the way that election business goes. But I do have my lines about what I will read and what I, what I won't read. And at some point, I'm going to turn down the ad, but it's more likely going to be for money and rate rather than than ethics. I haven't come across anything I wouldn't read yet, but that may be because I just haven't done enough you know, marketing to, to get that stuff to refuse. It's a good question, Logan. I mean, what would I refuse? I, I just don't know just yet because I haven't felt uncomfortable reading something. You mentioned earlier in the podcast that you are a hockey referee, and I find that referees have – Maybe the worst job in the world. I've done it once or twice on very 
low-level basketball games, and I hated every second of it. I won't do it anymore. Give us some fun referee stories since we're winding down here. Wow. Okay, yeah. All right, so I went to a school. It's actually my alma mater, Lower Canada College in Montreal, and it was an outdoor rink, but it was still artificial ice. So all they had was sort of a metal sort of barn structure over top of it, and they had sort of you know tarps to keep the wind out. It was minus 20, and the wind was howling through there. And a lot of the referees didn't like doing the games because you had to put on gloves and it was cold and you had to have a hat. And anyhow, so I was refereeing the game and some kid popped off at me and said some bad words and I gave him a 10 minute misconduct. He threw his stick, kicked and screamed, yelled some more obscenities and he got to the box and the linesman came over to me and said, why didn't you give him the game misconduct? And I said, no, no, no. I don't want him warm in the dressing room. I want him sitting in the box cold for 10 minutes <laughs> rather than send him to the dressing room to be warm. I'm not rewarding him. He's going to sit there and, and be cold. And who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to? And take that in two different directions. Since we are usually a sports casting podcast, who are your favorite play-by-play people? And who are a couple of your favorite just, uh, you know, any other kind of broadcasters, whether that's a music jock or a shock jock or a talk show host, who are your favorite broadcasters in both of those categories? That's a great question. You know, I, I watch a lot of NFL football, and I, I think there's something about having Joe Buck calling a football game that, that's fairly cozy on a, on a Sunday afternoon. I know a lot, a lot of people, you know, take shots at him and find that he's against their team. I, I think he's just a, such a, you know, he grew up around broadcasting, and he's such a seasoned veteran when it comes to it. I, I love the, the feeling that I get when I'm listening to a game. I think Troy Aikman... I'm I'm fascinated, and if you can ever get him on your show, that, that would be great. But Troy Aikman's ability to make the transition from quarterback to broadcaster has been seamless. And if you really think about it, well, why is that? Well, quarterbacking is all about preparation. Well, so is broadcasting. So this is why that he's he's done so well in this space. And again, I go back to the you know the Sunday afternoon football games. I really enjoyed listening to Pat Summerall. Uh, growing up, I, I I thought that was fantastic. Uh, big fan of Bob, Bob Costas, and in in Canada for many years, growing up, it was Danny Gallivan calling Saturday night hockey games for the Montreal Canadiens. There was there was no more wonderful feeling than that. I, I sadly I don't think hockey night in Canada is what it once was. It's slowly eroding, and I, I don't think we have that that feeling uh, that we that we once did. If I move over to the uh, broadcast side of things, I, I'm still um, love the work that Terry DeMonte does in Montreal at, at Shom FM. I grew up listening to him, and he's still doing it today uh, at Shom. He just does such a wonderful job at, at broadcasting that whether it's engagement and speaking to people and and just engaging the community and, and, and feeling a part of the whole fabric, he's still one of the very he's, – he's probably the, the top broadcaster in Canada for morning radio. And if somebody wanted to listen to your podcast, how would they find it? Soundoffpodcast.com. There are two buttons on the page, one for Android users uh, with Google Podcasts and one for iPhone users with Apple Podcasts. Help yourself. Once again, we are visiting with Matt Kundal. He is the host of the Sound Off Podcast, a radio consultant, also the host of the pod or of the Hot Air Podcast and a podcast consultant if you're looking to get a podcast off the ground. So, Matt, thanks so much for coming on the Say the Damn Score podcast. It's been long overdue. 
Love your podcast. Keep it up. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of SayTheDamnScore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. And remember, any kind of feedback is very appreciated. And what I'm asking for on this episode is either an email or a tweet answering what you like about this show, how you found the show, and what I could do better with this show. And you can email me at saythedamnscore at gmail.com or you can tweet me at radio underscore Logan, either a direct message or a tweet. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. I just want the feedback and I'd like to know your opinion. Lastly, please reach out to the guests of the show so they know you appreciate them coming on the pod and sharing their stories. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, the host of this show, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.